This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. In this weekly podcast, you will get the latest insight on Husker football, basketball, and baseball from HOL's Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, Dan Hoppen, Nate Klaus, and Greg Peterson. Now, here's your host, HuskerOnline.com publisher, Sean Callahan. Well, it's been quite a week here for Nebraska. It was uh, about as quiet as you could get in recruiting. And just like that, lightning strikes. Uh, Nebraska was at 12 commits um, the last couple of weeks here in July. The open period opened back up again where uh, schools could host prospects and uh, have contact with prospects again. And uh, Nebraska lands two commits here um, in this middle of July period. Uh, it started first with DiCaprio Boodle. Uh, a speedy defensive back out of Miami, Florida, that Nebraska saw in the satellite camp. DiCaprio, uh, as we reported on HuskerOnline.com, uh, planned to visit to Nebraska, and he ended up committing uh, before he even really set foot on campus. I mean, it was kind of a done deal the minute they bought the plane tickets. And then Nebraska also lands another commit uh, from Bo Wilson from Kansas City, an offensive lineman. And uh, we bring in Nate Klaus as uh, we start out this show with some breaking recruiting news over this week here, Nate. Uh, first of all, any surprises with the the way these announcements have moved? Well, I think the surprise is, you know, most likely with DiCaprio Boodle, who announced so soon. You know, he arrived on campus Wednesday night and really began his uh, his unofficial visit to Nebraska, you know, Thursday, um, you know, and wasted little time to, to go ahead and announce that commitment and make things official with, uh, with Nebraska's uh, staff. You know, it, it doesn't come as a surprise that he committed. Um, yeah, as you alluded to, it, was, it seemed like things were going that direction once he and his entire family decided – uh, to take the trip at this point in time and and definitely you know with his connection with his uh, older brother having played at, at Nebraska Omaha down there uh, when they still had their football program so um, you know it, it, it just uh, we didn't really see it coming this fast I guess and, uh, and tremendous pickup for Nebraska you know and, and really one of the first guys you can point to and said say that uh, this commitment is a direct product of the satellite camps you know DiCaprio was uh, uh, the, the overall fastest player at the Miami Satellite Camp. And that's saying something. Yeah, and there's over 400 kids there and, and a tremendous amount of, of talent down there. And uh, He ran uh, in the four threes um, and uh, was the overall fastest guy and, uh, and has good size, too. He's, he's not a just a small guy. He's you know, uh, 5'11", 170 pounds and, and a legit cover corner that uh, brings verifiable you know, track speed to the team. Yeah, it is interesting uh, that that connection and you, you just never know the connections you have and I'm guessing Nebraska had no idea that DiCaprio had a brother that's already played in Nebraska for UNO back when they had a football team and that was some good reporting by our own Mike Mattia um, who reported that information first about the connection to Nebraska and uh, I think it just shows that he's got parents that are comfortable sending a kid to school in Nebraska. Well, and, and they know what, you know, the University of Nebraska is all about, um, the, the history and the tradition. And, and of course, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, parents want to see their kids get out of out of the city, um, get out of the state even, to go somewhere like Nebraska, uh, where there's, you know, very little distractions uh, going on. So, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it was a very nice to, to have, you know, parents who are comfortable with having a kid uh, away from home and, and wanting to see them 
at a place like Nebraska. Sean Callahan, Nate Klaus here on the HuskerOnline.com podcast covering the breaking recruiting news over this week where Nebraska gets two late-week commits, first from cornerback DiCaprio Boodle, who we've been talking about, but also, Nate, from offensive lineman Bo Wilson out of the Kansas City area. And, you know, no stranger, at least some at West High School, Nebraska had Monte Harrison as a commit and a signee out of there a couple of years ago that chose to go play pro baseball. Uh, but, you know, in Nebraska offered Bo Wilson. It was somewhat of a surprise because uh, he didn't really have a lot of major offers. But Mike Cavanaugh obviously sees something in this young man. Well, Bo Wilson is a, a th- kind of a throwback offensive lineman, you know, uh, hard-nosed, tough guy. You know, he plays the game uh, with a with a passion, and uh, and he's he's uh, he gets down and dirty out there on the football field. And I know that's something that that definitely intrigues, uh, you know, Coach Mike Cavanaugh. And he likes to see guys with an attitude and, and that play the game, uh, you know, uh, uh, with that type of demeanor. So, uh, but outside outside of that, you know, he's a tremendous athlete. He's uh, um, you know, not the biggest guy at 6'2", uh, 277 pounds, um, you know, which was was verified at the St. Louis uh, Rivals Combine. Uh, but uh, he plays offensive tackle, uh, can play inside uh, at guard or center. So uh, a tremendous athlete. I think he'll be a center at Nebraska, which kind of allows, uh, you know, the Huskers to move both John Raritan and Brian Brokop to uh, to the guard positions where I think, are, you know, their natural spots uh, along the line. Yeah, how rare is that you don't necessarily hear that very often where you automatically say we're bringing this guy in as a center yeah it, it very rarely happens usually the best offensive lineman you know on, on any on any high school team is is playing you know the tackle uh, or guard but um, not too often that you see a kid with the versatility of Bo Wilson and uh, and the athleticism to to really pencil him in as a center uh, as a guy who projects very well at center uh, on the next level you're listening to the HuskerOnline.com podcast. Sean Callahan and Nate Klaus as we look at this offensive line, Nate. Nebraska lost four a year ago. They're going to lose six scholarship guys this year. So quite an imbalance in the numbers. I mean, typically you would only like to see three to four a year leaving uh, to have ten go in two years. It's put Mike Cavanaugh in a very difficult number situation. Uh, They kind of fell one short last year on the tackle side. We've seen them now load up again on the interior uh, with uh, two guards in the center. Uh, Ideally, you get Matt Farniak as a tackle. That's offensive line guy number four. Where do you think they go for number five and possibly number six? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they look uh, in the JUCO ranks uh, to bring in an offensive tackle. And I think they ideally would like to add, you know, three more um, offensive tackles to this class. You know, they're sitting, like you mentioned, they, they're sitting very well with Matt Farniak out of South Dakota, um, you know, and, and a number of other offensive tackle prospects across the country. But uh, I, I really do think that they'll entertain the, the idea of bringing in uh, junior college uh, offensive tackles, somebody who can step in right away, somebody who helps bring break up, uh, you know, and the numbers redistribute are. those numbers too. Because you look at the roster, your tackles right now, I mean, it, you got David Neville, um, Christian Gaylord, and that's about it. I mean, there's not a lot of vet, uh, younger tackle bodies that 
you could have a lot of confidence in at this point. Yeah, for whatever reason, Nebraska's uh, had absolutely no problem over the past few years recruiting on the interior, but they've they've had trouble signing you know uh, offensive tackle prospects, and and now they're kind of in a bind. Like you mentioned, uh, you know Mike Mike Cavanaugh is, is in kind of a predicament, uh, needing to sign some quality uh, talent there at the offensive tackle. I just spot. I think it's tough just to get pro personnel here, especially at quarterback and offensive tackle. And we're see you just don't get a lot of prototypical six seven tackles. That's why, like when an Andrews Pete decommitted or not decommitted, but didn't sign up Nebraska, that was a huge blow because you just don't get those kinds of tackles. And it's shown in recruiting uh, for Nebraska. And Nate, uh, one other recruiting storyline is Terry Wilson. We'll stick with the Wilson last name. Uh, he tweeted this week that he will not be taking his visit to Oregon, um, or he's postponed it and not um, to a later date. Good news, bad news for Nebraska. Well, it's hard to get a read on right now. Um, you know, when when he first came out and said that he was planning on visiting Oregon, uh, I didn't have any concerns at all. You know, uh, he's been very, um, you know, he's very much in in love with Nebraska and uh, loves everything about the program. Has built a a tremendous relationship with the coaching staff. Uh, but I think as time has gone on, you know, he's developed somewhat of a, a good relationship with uh, Oregon offensive coordinator Scott Frost as well. So, um, you know, I think it's it's uh, a good thing maybe the to space that visit out and that he's going to be taking an official visit you know where they can pay uh, his way up there uh, you know maybe it gives Nebraska some more time to try and get him on campus and uh, you know continue to foster that that dis- that relationship there before he heads out to Eugene for a game but um, you know I, I would say that I'm not quite as comfortable uh, with things right now as I was you know a month month and a half ago I'm just going to throw out my conspiracy theory here you got Scott Frost who Obviously would have liked to have the Nebraska job or even maybe be the coordinator. Well, he's not at Nebraska. And you've got Oregon State staff here, the the rival. Part of me thinks there's a little bit of motivation on this one for Scott Frost to try to get this guy away from the former Oregon State coaches at Scott Frost's alma mater. Yeah, that could certainly be the case. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some underlying motivation to, to do that. Uh, but Terry Wilson also, you know, he fits, he kind of fits the mold of, of. They have a guy committed, though. Yeah, so. they do have a guy committed, but Nebraska's got two two quarterbacks committed also. But, you know, and Terry Wilson, you know, from an athletic standpoint, I think he does kind of fit the mold of, of the type of quarterback that they've recruited, you know, over the past, you know, four or five years. Uh, he's a tremendous athlete, he can pass. Uh, we, we know that he's obviously athletic and can run whenever he wants to. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it is an interesting storyline to, to have, you know, uh, a former Husker quarterback trying to poach a quarterback from Nebraska now. With the backstory that that former Husker quarterback would obviously like to be the coach at Nebraska mm-hmm. someday. So, yeah, that, that's one to watch. Um, I think the longer it goes, though, without him being in Oregon, and if, then if Nebraska can just get him here for that South Alabama game or the BYU game or the Wisconsin, one of those games early, um, that is going to be huge. That'll be that'll be uh, you know really big for Nebraska and and at the end of the day, I, I think it, a lot of it is going to boil down to to distance. Um, you know, he's he's told me that his mother wants to to see him play in college, and you know, driving from Oklahoma City to uh, to Lincoln is is a lot easier to do than, than heading out to Eugene. Eugene. <laughs> well, we'll have a full podcast here today. 
today. Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett are going to join us. Uh, we're going to give our thoughts on the Nebraska basketball schedule released. Um, also, our, our, an update on kind of where things are at in basketball recruiting and the assistant coach shirt search for Rashawn Bruno. And then we'll close the show with some football talk. But we'll talk basketball next here on the podcast with Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett. This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And welcome back to the podcast. Sean Callahan, Robin Washington, Dan Hoppen. Now we're shifting over to basketball, and it's been a pretty somewhat eventful offseason for Nebraska. And we're, we're going to spend the next portion of the show uh, just getting caught up, all things Husker basketball. First of all, Robin, uh, welcome back from your 17-day European, I hope it was a basketball scouting trip for you or something, at least. Yeah, really. I was, I was kind of just helping out the coaching staff, really evaluating the top talent in Italy, Germany, and France. And uh, I got some notes for him. So, you know, I'm just trying to do my part. Wait, what's that guy on ESPN? Uh, Fran Fraschilla. He, oh, yeah. He, he's kind of the European scouting guy. You're you, just, just, you just call me the rivals.com Fran Fraschilla. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's 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 get right down to it, guys, um, as we kind of go over what's happened. You know, Rashawn Bruno was at Nebraska, what, for six weeks, Robin? Yeah, about six, seven weeks. Highest paid assistant on the staff when hired by like a couple thousand dollars over, um, you know, Molinari and, and Hunter, uh, but decides to leave to go to Arizona State uh, with a longtime friend of his, uh, Bobby Hurley, mm-hmm. which I don't think anybody is too shocked by. But first of all, your thoughts on that situation and, and kind of where is Nebraska today? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can look at it a couple ways. Obviously, you know, Rashawn had his reasons to go to Arizona State. I mean, the, the connection with the Hurley family that he has, you know, goes well beyond anything professional. So uh, it's it's understandable why he would be drawn to that. But at the same time, to fully commit to a school, accept a job, and be there for seven weeks, and then all of a sudden leave that school basically hanging in limbo with their coaching staff right before the July recruiting period, which is the most important month of the recruiting cycle. And every coach will tell you that. Uh, I thought it was pretty shady. You wonder if he bought a house even in Lincoln. No, I know he didn't. I think he was living at the Embassy Suites, you know, like most coaches do for a while. And then, uh, I mean, I don't know even know if you can buy a house in seven weeks around here. But, you know, it, it's, it was, like I said, it really put Nebraska in a tough spot you know I mean that this guy was not only you know your highest paid coach but he was really getting Nebraska involved with a, a bunch of recruits that um, you know he was making an immediate impact that everybody was excited about I mean this was the guy the young guy from Florida that you know had experienced you know the highest level of basketball uh, college basketball and uh, was really going to invigorate this staff and now uh, Nebraska's uh, left kind of scrambling right now because I don't know who you're going to be able to draw away uh, from a, a school that they're currently at at this point in the season. I mean, because, you know, you're asking them to do uh, something that, again, we're, we're criticizing Bruno for doing as a pretty shady deal. So it's it's really tough, but, you know, I think it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world by any means. We're talking about an assistant coach. Uh, Nebraska still has two very capable guys on staff with Kenya Hunter, who has been working his butt off this whole year. And I think people need to give him uh, as much credit as anybody. And then, of course, Jim Molinari is doing his work as well. So uh, it's, it's certainly not ideal, but, you know, Nebraska will survive. And some good news uh, as far as basketball recruiting goes, we saw Aguka Rope, who's a 2017 Nebraska recruit. He returned to the court after missing almost his entire junior, or excuse me, sophomore season uh, with a knee injury. 
Um, can you just kind of update us on him and, and how he's looked? How he looked great, by the way, in the video we have on the site. Yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. Uh, video courtesy of uh, Channel 7 did a great package on him, showing some highlights of him uh, playing on the AAU circuit with Omaha Elite. And uh, I'll tell you what, not only does he look as good as he did when you know I was able to watch him last summer, but I think he looks even better. And you know he credits that to the physical therapy he had to do because of this injury. You know, I mean, he probably did more leg workouts than he's ever done in his life, and you can see that pay off. I mean, he's elevating higher. He just looks stronger, faster. And uh, I think that, you know, this could be potentially a blessing in disguise. I mean, you never want a, a season ending knee injury, but I mean, the fact is it happened one game into his sophomore season. So he's got plenty of time to recover. And uh, if he's hitting the ground running, you know, the way he is this summer on into the high school season, uh, he could be, you know, arguably one of the top players in the state this year. Yeah, I'll be honest, Robin, when I saw him at state his freshman year play against, I think it was Norfolk and they got beat. He just looked like a skinny off-guard freshman player. He looked like a true small forward in those videos, uh, the way he was coming down and dunking with ease. Mm -hmm. And that's what you uh, you got to give Tim Miles credit. I mean, once again, he's able to identify these kids before they blossom. I mean, Isaiah Roby is another perfect example of that. I mean, when I when I first did my f first update on Isaiah Roby, people were you know calling him, asking if he was 12 years old, and now he's regarded as one of the top players in the state of Illinois. So uh, hopefully, a rope continues to, to follow that same trajectory. And uh, you know, from what we've seen so far in his brief return uh, it's looking that uh, a pretty good chance of that you're listening here to the huskeronline.com podcast sean callahan and robin washett as uh, we're getting caught up on on all the storylines that have happened here uh, the last couple weeks in husker basketball and you know and, uh, robin uh, with recruiting there, there's been some walk-ons added to the roster uh, a few other things where's nebraska at with the numbers here as uh, they, they kind of get geared up for the start of school yeah i mean obviously uh you know, last time I was on, the, the Pascal Chukwu was uh, still in the mix, but, uh, you know, uh, that uh, didn't uh, come to fruition. And so Nebraska's still left with that one spot that right now, unless something, you know, crazy happens between, you know, now and the, the start of the fall semester, I think that spot's going to go unused. And uh, so Nebraska's, you know, trying to do the best it can to, to piece together a roster. And you're starting to see that, you know, start get some bodies in on the walk-on front. Uh, you know, the, the most recent addition uh, was a guy named Malcolm Laws, who was a, a sophomore uh, shooting guard at Florida Atlantic and never really saw the, the floor. But uh, it's interesting, you know, he was not recruited by Nebraska, you know, and really you know, it was all on his end that he wanted to come play here so uh nebraska you know would, you know didn't hesitate to take him on as a walk-on and uh we'll see what type of player he can be but if nothing else uh, he joins, uh, you know, guys like Josh Lanassa, who uh, verbally committed to walk on about a month ago. And, uh, of course, Johnny Trueblood, the, the state champion guard from uh, Norfolk. And uh, then uh, B.J. Day, who uh, the Southeast kid who uh, sat out all last year with a knee injury. And so that's a, a pretty decent walk-on class that, you know, I think will help with, in terms of numbers, if nothing else. Dan, I'm going to ask you this. You played, obviously, at Hastings College for a year, and, and you had the opportunity to, to join Nebraska as a walk-on. And uh, but it, it's it's a tough route. I mean, I mean, what? How difficult is it um, for a guy to come in as a walk-on? I mean, you think about the history of the program. There haven't been a lot of walk-ons that have made heavy contributions, some spot minute appearances, but nothing uh, big time. No, you know, I, I think uh, you know almost the ceiling for a lot of walk-on guys is kind of what we saw. You know, out of guys like Mike Fox or Cole Solomon during the Doc Sadler era. Drake Baranek. Yeah, guys, guys who Verlander. Were well, yeah, Ver, or Valander would probably be about the top end, about as much as you can expect. But a lot of these guys are just kind of maybe undersized big guys who got playing time because Nebraska had so much 
trouble retaining players. Um, you know, there are definitely players down on other levels that can make an impact at Nebraska. But, you know, if you're expecting a walk-on to come in and give you 20, 25 minutes of Division One, yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, you, if you can get just a couple minutes out of them or a little bit of shooting or something like that, that's about as much as you can expect, to be honest. We're going to pick up the basketball talk here more in the next segment as Nebraska did release their schedule, and Robin and Dan will give their thoughts on the non-conference schedule next. Dope. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on the podcast. Husker basketball released their schedule this week. And, you know, as Nebraska basketball has raised their profile the last couple of years, this is definitely something I think that garners more and more interest because uh, Nebraska obviously has a, a big fan base now, a high season ticket base. And um, definitely you get more talk on the schedule uh, than you might have maybe in the Sadler or the Collier era, uh, just because Nebraska, uh, you know, more people go down to these games. And um, Robin and Dan, as we, we bring Robin Washington and Dan Hoppin back in the show, um, your initial thoughts, Robin, I'll start with you. When you look at the schedule, um, six of the 13 games are against what you'd consider power programs. Um, so I don't think you can be overly critical about the strength of it. Yeah, it's, it's a schedule that's kind of all over the place a little bit. You know, I mean, you got, you know, a trip to Villanova and then a trip against – or uh, home games against, you know, teams that were, you know, towards the 350th in the RPI last year. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's a good challenging schedule, you know, in terms of being able to play in some of these, uh, you know, tournaments like the Barclays and, you know, the, obviously the Gavit tip-off game. And um, so I think that it's a good mix – for Nebraska, I think that you know, with the, the young team, you didn't want to go completely overboard by you know scheduling uh, a ridiculous non-con schedule, especially with how good the Big Ten's going to be this way. I mean, uh, the reality is you're going to have to try and stockpile some wins, and I think they gave themselves a chance to do that while still uh, giving them a non-conference slate that's going to be respectable when it comes to you know potential uh, NCAA tournament seating. Yeah, to me, the thing that was kind of interesting, and Robin, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, if my memory isn't serving me right, but I thought when Tim Miles came in he kind of expressed a desire to kind of move away from you know some of these Mm -hmm. really low rpi games when you're talking about a southeastern louisiana or arkansas pine bluff abilene christian you know teams like that but at the same time like you mentioned you know sometimes you just got to put some wins up on the board to to get your resume going and when you play in the big 10 and when you're playing in some of these uh you know, some of these tournaments and uh, and showcases and stuff, you are going to have to just get some of those home games where maybe it's the mo- not the most exciting thing in the world for the fans, but you just got to stock up some wins. And, and yeah, I mean, y- you look at a lot of these games, they look like fun. I think that Barclays Center Classic has a chance to be really cool just because of the venue itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that arena is only a couple years old up in New Jersey. I mean, that's... That's tremendous. That's going to be a lot of fun. Well, as long as they take care of business early in that, I mean, they got a chance to play, you know, potentially two of Cincinnati, Georgetown, Washington, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. That right there is going to, you know, be a pretty intriguing, intriguing matchups there. So, so, do they have to win those two games to guarantee, or are they automatically they do they automatically get to go to New York? Yeah, they, they're automatically going to go. Um, their first two guaranteed games are Southeastern Louisiana and Arkansas Pine Bluff. So assuming uh, no disaster happens there and they win those, then they're going to get matched up with at least one of those four that I just mentioned. And if they win that game, then uh, chances are they're going to face uh, another one of that group. Hopefully there's some TV for that. You would think that. Yeah, there, mm-hmm. I think there'll be something. I mean, You've got Cincinnati, Georgetown, Washington, and Tennessee 
um, as potential opponents. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, I, I just don't, I'm curious how that falls. You, you hope it's not Cincinnati because they just played those guys right. two years in a row. It would be nice to see them play George. Georgetown's going to be good though, and you, I know Villanova going back to that opening uh, Big East deal that. Tuesday, uh, you know, it's the second game of the season. Mm-hmm. Talking to Rob Anderson, uh, the Creighton media relations director, um, he said this is one of Villanova's better teams. They're going to have, uh, you know, they're another, they're a team that's a top five type program again. Um, so that is not going to be an easy trip out to Philadelphia. Yeah, and what's funny is, you know, we you start the year uh, at home against Mississippi Valley State, who was six and twenty six last year, ranked number three forty five in uh, last year's RPI, and the very three days later, you're heading out to Philadelphia at a place a former number one seed that won 33 games last year that might be better than they were a year ago even though they lost their leading score so uh nebraska better be ready in a hurry uh, with this young team which as we've been talking about makes that overseas trip to spain so important to get some uh, extra games under their belt because uh, if you're just relying on mississippi valley state to get you ready for villanova yeah you're gonna have some problems i, I agree completely robin i think that's a great point i think that you know this is a team that is going through so much change as they lose their leading scorer, Taran Petaway, and Walter Pitchford, another guy who played huge minutes for them. They're going to be injecting a lot of newcomers, Andrew White and Glenn Watson, Ed Morrow, guys like that, into this lineup. It might take a little time for these guys to uh, to kind of gel together and figure out where each other like the ball, how they're going to play together. So I kind of wish that that Villanova game were maybe to- more towards the end of the non-conference schedule. Um, and let Nebraska develop a little continuity, but obviously they don't have that luxury. And by the way, guys, whoever is the scheduler for the Big Ten ACC Challenge, I'm, I'm just going to fire the guy. <laughs> I don't know who he is, uh, but let, let's just have Miami come back to Lincoln again. Yeah, no kidding. So no. Nebraska played at Florida State last year, but their game two years ago was Miami. I mean, come on, seriously. Mm-hmm. There's 14 teams in each league, and you've got to send the same team back to Lincoln. I mean, that 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 just does not make sense. For a variety of reasons, I'm not asking Duke, North Carolina, to come here because that's not going to happen. Uh, but send a Wake Forest here, or the NC State, or somebody, something new, somebody new, Georgia Tech. I mean, yeah. I don't Pittsburgh. I'd like to see Nebraska Pittsburgh. I think that would be a fun one, just because uh, they've never played. But um, going down that stretch, Robin, after the Barclays, that's a home game stretch of Miami, Abilene Christian, Creighton, Rhode Island. A uh, Rhode Island, Creighton's on the road. road yeah. Rhode Island and Sanford. To me, that is the defining stretch right there. Um, where they have to make some hay. Yeah, and you know the the two most intriguing home games uh, on the non-conference slate are obviously during that stretch uh, with you know Miami and Rhode Island. I mean Miami uh, keep if you didn't remember, was in the NIT finals last year and won 25 games, and they have their top four scorers back. And, you know, Rhode Island obviously beat Nebraska last year uh, out there uh, in their first road game of the year in overtime. And, uh, you know, they were an NIT team, and they have four starters Creighton's back. got two transfers, um, one from Boston College yeah. or Boston. And, yeah, and Creighton beat Nebraska and, they, and Lincoln, and they're probably going to be better than they were a year ago. Yeah, they're still going to be developing from everything I've heard uh, but yeah, that that's going to be a tough game in Omaha as, as it always is. Um, but you look at 13 games, Robin. I mean, what is a if you were, if I was to put a gun to your head and say what's the realistic best case? I mean, is it a 10 and three 
kind of what you would shoot for nine and four. I mean, where, where, where do you fall right now on non-conference win loss total? If you look at this today? Yeah. I mean, I think 10 wins is certainly attainable, but a lot of it is going to depend on how things shake out, uh, at the Barclays deal, just because there's, you know, two games where you don't even know who you're playing yet. Uh, so, I mean, if they're you know able to get some favorable matchups there and, you know, maybe they're able to, to, to pad that a little bit, but, uh, some of the key games, you know, we mentioned about, I mean, that Rhode Island game is going to be huge for your RPI. You can't lose that game. There's like six games they could theoretically lose. Right. And I I mean, if oh, they, yeah, if they no could doubt. go three and three, that'd be a 10 and three record in the non-conference. Yeah. And you, you just certainly don't want that. So uh, you got to hope that things gel like Dan was talking about. It doesn't take too long for things to, to really get clicking, because like we said, I mean, you're getting thrown in the fire right away, two games in at Villanova. And then, you know, you're spending four games on the road. Uh, you know, a week later uh, out in Barclays. So uh, certainly going to pr- present some interesting challenges for a young team that uh, is still, try- still trying to figure itself out. Well, it should be fun. I'm, I'm, I'm excited again for another basketball season. I know it was a rough year last year, guys, but I think uh, the talent coming in uh, shouldn't make this intriguing to follow as there hasn't been a recruiting class like this in quite some time. All right, that's enough basketball talk. We're going to shift back over and uh, we're going to talk football here in our final two segments as uh, we're going to talk special teams and field position numbers next here in the podcast. This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Back here on the HOL podcast, Sean Callahan. Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett as we move back over to football talk. Guys, we are uh, just about two weeks away from Big Ten Media Days, July 29th. Uh, we will be in Chicago, uh, the entire HOL staff, as uh, we cover the Big Ten Media Days for Nebraska. And uh, Jordan Westerkamp, Tommy Armstrong uh, will be there, as well as Nathan Gary representing Mike Riley in his first run of Big Ten Media Days. And I can't tell you how excited I am to get down to Chicago um, because it's going to be very, very interesting, just the storylines uh, we get out of there uh, with Nebraska. And we'll talk more about that in the next few shows. But I wanted to bring this up. Uh, Dan, I was going through my preseason Athlon issue, um, and I, they did this advanced stat breakdown, and I had no idea this number existed. And it's funny, I talked to a few other guys around the program. They didn't know. Uh, but last year, Nebraska, according to the Athlon Stats advanced stat breakdown, was number one in the nation in starting field position um, compared to 2013 where they ranked towards one of the bottoms in the country. Nebraska's average starting offensive field position was the 36.1 yard line, which is That's incredibly incredible. high, yeah. <laughs> that, that's basically you're 30 yards away from a field goal. Mm-hmm. And you look at the year before in 2013, they averaged starting at their own 28.2 yard line. So, I mean, that's almost an eight-yard difference that you're not having to make up on each and every drive. That's that's a huge number. Well, I, the, I can't imagine any other team in the country made it even close to that kind of a jump. And then the, the drives in 13 that were inside the 10, inside the 5, inside the 20, I mean, it was almost embarrassing how many times Nebraska was starting inside their own 20, inside the, the 10 even, where they flipped that, or they had very few the next year. Yeah, Nebraska only started 21 drives uh, inside its own 20-yard line last year, which is a pretty good number. For comparison's sake, Nebraska's opponents last year, playing against Nebraska, started 45 drives inside their own 20-yard line. So Nebraska was able to get a huge edge in field position just from that number alone. Well, and, they, and you know you have to give the previous staff a lot of credit on that. Um, they more or less 
remove the special teams duties from Ross Ells without announcing it. And uh, Jeff Jamrog kind of took it over behind the scenes. I and mean, he was the special teams coordinator for Frank Solage for years, had a lot of background. So he schematically drew up all the stuff behind the scenes and obviously he couldn't coach it in practice, but uh, Bo Pelini was heavily involved and they emphasized it. And it showed last year uh, defensively, Nebraska's opponents, Dan, started on the uh, 28-yard line, which that's pretty darn good when you think about it as well, uh, considering now a touchback is the 25. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you remember going back to 2013, Nebraska's special teams, pretty much other than Pat Smith, the kicker, were kind of a joke. <laughs> I mean, they, they couldn't uh, return punts, which obviously hurts field position. I think they kind of struggled covering kicks. Sam Fultz was kind of inconsistent as a punter, and they were – not very good in that area and you have to give Bo Pelini and, and his staff credit because they did put an extra emphasis on that last spring uh and last fall um in in practice and we saw that and Nebraska came out and had a tremendous year I think the coverage units were all much better we saw Nebraska block a number of kicks especially Kyron Williams uh Sam Foltz was just a new man and I think he's going to be even better this year he looked tremendous and then obviously you throw a guy uh, like DeMornay Pearsonell in there, he's going to help swing field position several times well, a game. Yeah, two games jump out to me. The Iowa game, uh, Pearsonell, mm-hmm. I mean, even the Michigan State game, mm-hmm. uh, what he did there. But the Purdue game is one that people kind of forget about. Uh, but if you remember, I think Nebraska blocked uh, one or two punts right off the bat in that game. Mm-hmm. And the offense played just awful that day. Yep. I mean, yeah. Wasn't it 21-7? to or was the, I mean, it was like a really – It was very ugly, yeah. Ugly game. Um, where Nebraska beat Rutgers and Purdue those two weeks, but you knew they were not ready for Wisconsin. And it showed when they went out to Wisconsin, but special teams pretty much won them that Purdue game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you look at the the USC game and the bowl game. I know that Nebraska, they gave up a kick return for a touchdown in that game. That's something you don't want to see. Yeah, Amir Abdullah on kickoffs that but game. But yeah, Amir had several uh, very strong kickoffs that game. Uh I think Nebraska blocked at least – I think they blocked just one – was it two, two. punts? That Kyron yeah, Kyron two. got two punts And USC that game. hadn't given up a block punt in a few years. Yeah, and I, I want to say DeMorne had at least one good return. I mean, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that helps swing games. Nebraska was in a lot of trouble in that game, and I think those block punts really kind of helped them grab some momentum back, and Amir kind of helped, uh, you know, get Nebraska in good field position. It's field position just isn't something that really gets talked about all that often, but it is something that's really, really important. And you just don't see people go after punts anymore with the protection shield. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, when you talk about going after a punt in that protection shield, it's risky. Um, but you credit Nebraska. They saw things on film. They saw weaknesses that they could attack because those those blocks against USC, I mean, they were back there in, in no time. And, I think a lot of protection shield teams don't expect you to try to go after the punter anymore. Yeah, I, it, teams almost just take it for granted. I think that you know you're just going to let them snap the ball and punt it because so few teams you know really go for that block. And I think you got to give it a lot of credit not only to the staff for kind of developing a scheme that allowed some guys to get back there, but heck, give some credit to Kyron Williams. I mean, he blocked three kicks last season. <laughs> That's pretty incredible for a freshman. I think this guy's a really special player and. It's a crowded spot back at that safety position, but even if he's not, you know, out on the field defensively, he can still have a huge impact on special teams, uh, trying to block punts and working as a gunner. I'm going to be real intrigued though on kicker this year. What I mean, I think Drew Brown's obviously got mm-hmm. the major advantage, but um, can this Jamie Sutcliffe, the walk-on junior college uh, kicker, make a run? Um, that remains to be seen. I mean, I, 
I'm skeptical. I think it's going to be tougher for this kid than you think. Um, he's never kicked in a big stadium before. He's never kicked to this kind of pressure. Yeah, what Pat Smith did a couple of years ago is not normal. No. <laughs> that well, was impressive. And there just aren't that many junior college kickers out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of a rare thing to see a Juco. So I'll be real curious um, how that plays out. But I, I can see Drew Brown being motivated holding on that job. But, um, you know, the kickoff specialist role with Mauro Bondi gone – um, you know, talking to some people, Spencer Lindsay, somebody I think that could end up winning that. Uh, but Jamie Sudcliffe was very good at touchbacks at the junior college level as well. So um, it will be interesting to see kind of what direction Bruce Reed goes with some of these spots. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the numbers from last year. Uh, Mauro Bondi, almost 44 per, or a little more than 44% of his kickoffs went for touchbacks. That's a pretty good number. Drew Brown was a little under 30%. And Spencer Lindsay, only one of his nine kickoffs went for a touchback so unless he's added some strength to that leg you know maybe maybe he's the guy Nebraska wants I don't know that'll be interesting to see but yeah Jamie Sutcliffe was a guy who sent about 40 percent of his kickoffs uh for touchbacks in junior college and like you said that's a different level you know it he would have to step it up at this level but uh but yeah I think that's going to be an interesting battle to watch I know you know Marl Bondi Came, became a little bit of a punchline here, you know, in his last couple seasons. But he did do a good job on kickoffs. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that that's not a guy that you want to be giving a scholarship to, but he did have an important role on this team. I honestly think they could have kept him around as last year. I mean, they they have the numbers, mm-hmm. but they didn't. He he wasn't even a factor. We all watched spring ball, and he he didn't yeah. get any reps, so you kind of knew the writing was on the wall that he there, was yeah. going to be around. But I still think he had the best touchback leg. Yes. He was not an Adi Kanalik. I mean, you remember no. when Adi Kanalik did it, they kicked from the 30 back then. Uh-huh. And they moved it back to the 35. And Kanalik was getting routine touchbacks from the 30, which is crazy. I remember at Iowa State one year, Kanalik, they had a 15-yard penalty that put them back to the 15. And he put the ball in the end zone from the 15-yard line. That dude could just kick it to the moon. It's yeah. incredible. I mean, and the Iowa State return guy in Ames was playing up at about the 10, and he just skied it over the guy's head. I mean, it was <laughs> probably one of the better kickoff guys you'll ever see at Nebraska. But, yeah, that, that's an important part, um, and they've got to get some of this stuff figured out. There's no doubt. But. Yeah, no question. I, you know, that's going to be an interesting battle in fall camp. You know, not only, like you mentioned, that place kicker position, but – Maybe depending on who wins that job, you know, that might help determine who takes that kickoff specialist spot. All right, when we come back on the show, we're going to close things off. Uh, We've come out with our top 40 Huskers list. Uh, We've approached almost the top 10 status here. Uh, We're going to talk more about those ranking lists and kind of uh, what we came up with next here in the podcast. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Final segment here of the podcast, Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, and Dan Hoppin as uh, we continue our talk here, preseason football talk here for Nebraska as uh, they are getting closer and closer to the start of fall camp. Big Ten Media Days is about two weeks away as we'll be in Chicago uh, with full coverage. But as we do every year at this time, guys, we do another ranking series and uh, we do our top 40 Huskers of significance and you know, it's a it's a fun thing because each one of us have a, a very different you know set of rankings, and I think after the top twenty, it's really wide open. Maybe even top fifteen, uh, you know, spots sixteen to forty, uh, very wide open on our list. And you know, going up and down the groupings here, guys, uh, we are approaching the top ten, but we've got our basically our bottom thirty here. We can talk about. Um, anything really jump out to you, Dan, when you start uh, looking at the, the, the bottom 30 names here? 
Uh, you know, uh, nothing, you know, no, nothing really crazy. I think probably just the, the weird thing looking at this list and the thing that I think, you know, we've only done this for the past couple of years, but if we would have gone um, over the past six or seven years, I think in the top five, if not the top three every year, you would find a running back, whether that were Roy Hallou or Rex Burkhead or Amir Abdullah. And this year, you know, there's just kind of that uncertainty at the position. There's so many guys that, you know, could have an impact. So, you know, you've got like a, a Terrell Newby at number 13. You've got Adam Taylor tying for 16. Um, Amani Cross and Mikhail Wilbon, I believe, were both on the list as well. So there's just kind of that uncertainty at the running back position that Nebraska is not used to seeing. And I'll throw offensive line robin out there as another uncertainty. I mean, I, I know I had Dylan Utter higher. You guys had him a little lower, but he's probably a starter right now, and we had him at number, I believe, 32 on the list. Yeah, and, you know, it goes back to the uh, uncertainty of the competition there. I mean, Alex Lewis is, you know, really the only uh, established starter at this point, and other than that, it's all wide open. Uh, You know, I mean, you look at some of the other names that, you know, made it on this list, and it's funny because, uh, you know, there's some guys that are still competing with each other for a starting job that, you know, both made the top 40 list. So uh, that can be a good and bad thing. Uh, You know, obviously you'd like to have more established guys up front, but at the same time, you also have some pretty good depth of guys competing for uh, starting jobs that uh, should make for a pretty good rotation looking at wide receiver we had Westercamp number 11 I believe on the list right is that where you fall number 10 number 10 um and so we're, we're kind of teasing that a little bit uh he's someone you you could argue could be higher um you know he's very experienced but um you know the receiver position with Pearsonell and Riley there's just other spots that have more value or question um and and that, that's why a guy like Westercamp finished number 10 on the list but um it is interesting because um, you know, Terrell Newby, we project him as maybe the top running back, and um, but we, we don't know. Adam Taylor is right after him. Of the running backs on our list, I believe Amani Cross um, was third, and he's the leading rusher uh, by far returning. Yeah, but I think, you know, I, we definitely saw at the end of spring ball, Terrell Newby was the guy. Um, Reggie Davis, the, the position coach, talked about it. If anyone separated himself, it was Terrell mm-hmm. Newby. And he was the guy who started um, for the red team in the spring game, and he actually looked great on those first couple drives and then had a minor injury, and they just kind of sat him out just because, you know, you don't want to risk it in an exhibition game. But I think if anyone did create a little bit of separation, it was him. And unfortunately, you know, for a guy like an Amani Cross who's been an incredibly hard worker and he's put in a lot of uh, a lot of hard hours over these last couple of years, but this new coaching staff just doesn't have any allegiances to him like the old staff did. You know, I think if, if Bo Pelini and Tim Beck were still around, I think Imani Cross's standing would probably be higher because he'd built up, you know, some uh, some cachet with those guys. But this new staff, you know, they just they don't have that kind of relationship with Cross. So they're just going to put the best guy on the field. And right now it looks like that might be newbie. Robin, yeah. uh, another guy is Jamal Turner, 39 on the list. If we did this list two years ago, Jamal Turner might be in the top 15. Yeah, and what's funny is I, I was the only guy to, to rank him, and the only reason I did that was because, you know, I, I still am holding on to faith that... You're a believer. Yeah, that, that he's going to become that guy that we all thought he was going to... Maybe not the, quite the player he was going to be when he was, you know, somersaulting over the goal line in the spring game as a true freshman, but uh, I, I think that he's still got, you know, enough in the tank that he, he can be a productive player in this passing game. I mean, he missed the first part of spring because of injury, but when he got back, he actually 
actually looked pretty good. And, you know, obviously he's going to have to, uh, you know, fight for playing time with Pierce Snell, Westerkamp, and Brandon Riley. Uh, but I think that he's right there in the mix uh, as a guy with, you know, has the veteran presence to him that has made big plays and big games that uh, should be able to be a be an impact guy. One snub, Dan, at receiver was a lot more. I mean, he's somebody that started and played a lot last year when Brandon Riley was hurt. Um, he could emerge, but he didn't make our top four. Yeah, I think that's a guy you look look at him and got all the talent in the world, and, and he's one of those guys who you can watch him practice, and you'll see him make a play or two, and you're just like, holy cow, this guy could really make an impact this year. And then you see, you know, a ball bounce off his hands, or you see Nebraska run a play, and and uh, and Keith Williams, the receivers coach, is running out there and <laughs> showing him what he did wrong in his route. So it's just it's all consistency with Alonzo Moore. There's no question that the talent is there, but. But right now, you know, that receiver position is kind of crowded. We talked about Westerkamp, Pearson, all those guys we know are going to get a lot of touches. Brandon Riley had a fantastic spring. I think he's in for a big year. Robin just talked about Jamal Turner. You know, and then, you you know, you bring in guys like uh, Tariq Allen, Lane Hovey. I mean, Lane Hovey. Yeah, that's Robin's guy. These are all guys who are going to be fighting for reps, and that's not even counting the true freshmen that are coming Stanley in. Stanley Morgan, so, LeVan Austin. Yeah. I mean, I, they both could play. Exactly. So, you know, if Alonzo Moore, he's got the talent to be on this list. I think if this was the top 40 most talented guys, he'd be on it, and, and but he's got to prove it. Sticking with freshmen, uh, Aaron Williams was our highest freshman. Was he 30 or 31 on the list? Oh, we've got uh, Dedrick Young on here as well. Oh, Dedrick Young yes. and Aaron Williams, but – I want to go to Aaron Williams. You know, I, I've had some conversations with Brian Stewart, and and Stewart feels like he's a guy that could potentially be a, a three-year starter at Nebraska. And, and those are strong words from a guy like Stewart, who was the former defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, when I talked to, to Stewart a little bit during those camps, you know, just having you know, some casual conversations with him, we, I asked him about Aaron Williams. And uh, what really was interesting to me uh, from what he said was, you know, he's a guy you only have to tell something once. Uh, you know, for a true freshman to come in here and roll early in the spring, uh, it's funny because you know Stewart was saying, uh, you know, he'd tell him something, and you know Williams just kind of has this nonchalant attitude, like you don't even know if he's listening. But then he would go very next rep and do exactly what you just told him, and so he's got this kind of football mind that allows him to process and retain information a lot faster than not only guys his age, but you know guys a lot older than him too, and that's going to bode very well for his chances to be a, a like you said, a fixture in that yeah, defensive backfield. Yeah, he's backfield. not redshirt. There's no doubt about no it. Way. He will be on the field um, week one, all special teams, and um, be right behind Byerson Cockrell probably at safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know this is a guy that I think when he came in and emerged so quickly, he might be part of the reason why Leroy Alexander is no longer on the team because when Cockrell was playing nickel uh, in the spring, it was Aaron Williams who was taking a lot of those first team reps at safety and not Leroy Alexander. And this staff didn't have any, like you mentioned, allegiances to Monty Cross. They weren't really big fans of Leroy Alexander. I exactly, mean, they, they yeah. didn't think he was somebody. I think that was going to, you know, be a starter on this team. And, and Leroy sounds like he's at Youngstown State now. From um, this dissect, di, dissect, uh, dissecting or deciphering, deciphering. Excuse me, <laughs> got my dictionary. We got there. Um, Twitter conversations. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was trying to say. No, that'll be a good fit for him too. But you know, like Dan mentioned, I mean, the the, the young uh, talent they have coming up in that defensive backfield is going to be so valuable down the road that uh, you know, even if guys aren't playing, they're going to have a, a plenty of uh, depth and, uh, like I said, talent to work with. Well, guys, we're getting closer to the start of the season. 
I'm looking forward to Chicago. I'm looking forward to see how much pizza Dan Hoppen eats. Oh, man. Are we going to Malnati's? Malnati's. Oh, come on, yeah. Dan's going to get his own pizza, and then Sean and you and I are going to split one. I'm cool with that. What's crazy <laughs> is a large deep dish at Malnati's is, like, cheap. It costs the same as a large pizza from Godfather's Pizza. Yep. And like, it's four times it's as good. It's way yeah. better. So <laughs> I always tell my wife that when we spend, like, 30 bucks for a large pizza at Godfather's, I'm like, this is a ripoff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Lou Malinati's. But I'm looking forward to Chicago. Uh, next week we will have more previewing of the Big Ten Media Days as we get ready for Chicago. But that signs it off here for another edition of the HuskerOnline.com podcast. Thanks again for joining us this week on HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. 